You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week we explore some aspect of the world of intelligence and espionage, its past, its present, or its future. To celebrate the 4th of July, here is a tantalising teaser on the focus of this week's SpyCast. Here's the wide of the pitch. Swing and a drive hit well. Deep centre field. Way back goes Springer to the warning track. Looking up and it is gone! Goodbye! Soon goes the Z-Man! Yes, that's right. For this week's episode, we re-release our World Series special from last fall. And yes, it features no less a figure than Mr. National, 2019 World Series champion, Ryan Zimmerman. Alongside Ryan is one of my favourite podcast guests of all time. Known as one of the most decorated CIA officers of his generation, the chock full of energy, self-confessed baseball nut that is Mark Polymeropoulos. And what a duo they were. If you don't see many links between baseball and intelligence, then you really need to listen to this episode. From spying to sign stealing to covert communications and the power of number crunching, we touch on all of these themes and more. Personally, I think that both of the guys knock it out of the park. Listen to two figures who reached the top of their respective fields have a good chinwag with yours truly to celebrate the 4th of July. Happy birthday, America. Well, I'm so glad that this is happening and I'm glad, uh, I think it's a great follow-up to the one that me and Mark had last year and now we've got a bona fide Mr. National <laughs> Baseball Player World Series winner uh, with us, which is really adds a, another dimension to it. So thank you, gentlemen, for coming in this morning. Uh, the, the, the first thing that I wanted to start off with, is there anything that you've ever wanted to ask a CIA officer who <laughs> happens to have wrote an article on baseball and espionage? And is there anything that you've, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you've always wanted to ask uh, Ryan. So uh, if we want to start off like that, we'll just get the conversation flowing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the coolest things about this city, and people ask me, you know, what was it like to play there, play in the same city for so long. And, and I've always said I think D.C. is the coolest city in the world because it's the most powerful city. And there's things that you can do here that you can't do anywhere else. You know, there's great cities all across the country. And, you know, there's just things here that don't exist anywhere else. And when you're here and you do sports and we get invited to do some pretty cool things, and I've done some fun things. Um, as far as questions, I mean, I I love this stuff because, like, the more people that I've met, they give you like a little bit, and then they're and then they kind of stop. It's almost like the he's like, "Hey, I have something to tell you, but I can't tell you." So, like, if I had to ask one question, oh man, is there like a is there like the underground city and roads underneath the underneath the city, <laughs> underneath underneath CIA? Well, yeah, I know we you know we know that you actually have been to CIA I headquarters. Have, that was really an honor, obviously, and, to go there. And and I had retired at the time. My wife was still there, and she actually uh, went to UVA, so she had you sign a UVA hat. Yeah, they had me come and yeah. actually speak. That's right for ten or fifteen minutes to a lot of so the, she, she the loved people it. there, and it was that was really fun. But uh, so I think one of the one of the, the kind of the fun facts about about CIA, you know, there certainly is a basement, 
but in the basement, there's a famous hot dog machine. It's disgusting when you think about it because it's a hot dog. I don't know how long those hot dogs have been there, but it's kind of in, in a good note, you know, if we're supposed to be working 24 seven to protect the country, sometimes you're hungry in the middle of the night yeah. and they sell these kind of nasty hot dogs. And so that's, that's a, that's a famous tidbit. So next time you go, ask to go to the hot dog machine. Don't try it. Just take a picture of it. It's like a good cast iron. It's got yeah, that's right. some good flavor from, from years and years. Right. <laughs> Uh, and maybe Mark can confirm if the Astros built a secret underground tunnel network right. under Nationals Park. Oh, boy. <laughs> banging the, banging they the didn't work, they, didn't, they didn't do a, a good enough job, I guess. We were, <laughs> we were ready. We were ready for them. That's one thing that I wanted to, you know, explore the Astros and the sign stealing and so forth. But just before we get there, I found this great historical nugget which... Uh, ties into Ryan going to visit CIA. So in 1990, the CIA director, William Webster, took along the owners of the uh, Baltimore Orioles. And director Webster said, many here have found that baseball is particularly compatible with intelligence. Both could be called the sport of the long season. Both demand the long view, a need for teamwork, a demand for individual performance, both require excellence and precision. I just wondered if either of you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that's what makes baseball special is we play twice as many games as anyone else. Um, you could argue we could kind of modernize it and maybe cut it back by about 20 or 25 games. Um, but it's really hard for a team to have success at the beginning of a year and sustain it. That's not a it, it, we it, by the end of the year, you know who the good teams are. It's it's hard to you can't fake it, but for only for a month or two. Um, so I think our sport's unique in that way because we it is a grind. It's it's so long, and like he said, you know, it takes everybody. It takes teamwork. You're going to have injuries. It's just undeniable that people are going to get hurt. I'm going to go through a time where I stink, and someone else is going to have to be good, and then they're going to stink, and I'm going to have to be good. So you create this relationship because you spend more time with those guys than your family, literally, for six or seven months. And I'm sure when when they're doing things, you know, they're away from their families and they're doing, I mean, they're not 24-7. They're, you know, whatever, weeks and weeks of 24-7 to find something. So I think it is, I think it is very compatible. You know, I, I was actually, I was at, the, you know, the, the game um, when your number was retired. It was it was pretty remarkable, and that what I was thinking of, and it just you know it, it it was it was really kind of it kind of hit me was how it's very similar at the end of someone's career at CIA. I remember when I walked out for the last time, and you know, and, and you think about kind of the ups and downs, and I think you made some great statements, and that you know at, at some points in your career you're hitting two twenty, and other times you know you're an all star, and so it's, it, that's similar in the intelligence business because what you learn, and I think it's the exact same with baseball, is you learn how to overcome adversity, and if you can't be mentally tough. Uh, uh, on, a, on a consistent basis over kind of a marathon, um, you're not going to succeed. And so you're going to have tough times, but it's how you react to those. And I think that that builds strength and character. I mean, I, you know, I always, in the, in the, in the book I wrote, um, uh, you know, and there's, there's references to the Nats, there's references to the Red Sox, but I'll, I'll never forget that 2004 Red Sox team where, remember they were down 3-0 and Kevin Millar gets yep. up there and says, we're going to shock the world. Yep. But, you know, the year before they had, they had lost a crushing seven game series to the Yankees. And I don't think they win in 04 if they hadn't gone through what they did in 03. And even with, with the Nats and with some playoff failures, you know, 2019 was a magical time, but I, you know, maybe you don't have that success if you hadn't gone through so much as a team before. Yeah, very rarely do you see a team that goes to the playoffs for the first time right. and really kind of just runs through and wins the World Series. And, you know, we fail a lot. You guys, I'm sure, fail right. a lot um, because we're both doing things that are almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, me hitting a baseball with not knowing what the guy's going to throw and not quite as, uh, I wouldn't say dramatic for real life is what you guys do when you're maybe fail to, to find information or something right. like that. But, um, you know, we both did things that were really hard to succeed at. And you know, like you said, the failure and the learning from your mistakes or gathering information from the failures lets you succeed in the, in the future. It's, it's quite interesting to me because it seems that what both of you done have got to be two of the hardest things to do on the planet, <laughs> to hit a ball coming at you 100 miles an hour and not knowing what kind of pitch it is or trying to spot, assess, develop and recruit 
someone to betray their country, to give you secrets. Both of them are really difficult things to do. So I was wondering, was there ever a point for any of you where you thought, God, this is too difficult. Like I just, <laughs> I feel like throwing in the towel. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one big difference is, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but at least I can talk about it with people. I think that's probably the toughest thing for a lot of what they do is they can't share it even with their closest confidants or, you know, spouse, what mm-hmm. partners, whoever it is. You know, a lot of the times when you go through tough times, the best thing to do is talk about it with someone that you love or trust. And we can do that. Um, but as far as, you know, did I ever think when when I had the shoulder injuries, um, you know, playing third base coming up is like a defensive first person and that's what I took so much pride in and then I had the 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 shoulder problems I went through those that year year and a half where I could sometimes my shoulder felt great and sometimes I couldn't throw the ball to first base and you know you've been doing something your whole life and it was you never even thought about it and then to have to go through that I didn't I never thought about quitting but it definitely gave me a different perspective before that there was really no real hardship Besides just the normal baseball slump or, you know, you have a bad game where you make a couple errors and you strike out three times, but you play a game the next day and that goes away. But that one was was tough, and I think I grew up a lot mentally through that. It, it, it wasn't fun or enjoyable to go through, but I think, you know, the second part of my career moving to first base and then not being an everyday player, I think I— not that I ever took anything for granted, but I enjoyed success more after that because it was taken away from me for a little bit. I should maybe rephrase that question. Rather than quitting just playing baseball or quitting being a CI officer, I should probably have, have phrased it more. Did you ever reach the point where you doubted that you would reach the promised land of your of your profession, like the, like the World Series or the playoff run or some really top draw recruitments and so forth. Ed, did you ever worry that you were never going to reach the heights that you always wanted to get to? I mean, you know, you think about, you know, the counterterrorism wars, you know, I spent most of my career in running counterterrorism operations and, and, you know, we, you know, after, after the terrible events of 9-11, I think everything changed for us where, you know, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and, and some other places. I ran one of our paramilitary bases for a year along the Pak-Afghan border, but really the hunt for bin Laden, you know, it took 10 years. And, and, you know, I have a really good friend of mine. Um, and it's, this is, it's such a great story because you can just, you know, you can, because you know, that was the promised land, you know, finding, fixing, and just, we'll say it, finishing bin Laden, you know, perhaps the same thing as a World Series victory. Um, but 10 years, and that's all this friend of mine did. You know, so I was, I went kind of in and out. Sometimes I did, you know, kind of normal uh, uh, CIA operational tours, maybe in an embassy. Um, maybe then I went for a year to Afghanistan. But this friend of mine, all he did for 10 years was hunt for bin Laden. And so when it finally happens, really interesting because it was frustrating along the way. And, and there's some tragic stories where we lost friends, lost allies. But ultimately, after bin Laden was killed, and when I talked to him about it, it was, it was a strange feeling because now he almost said, well, okay, now what do I do? Um, but it was, you know, there, there's, there, there are some things operationally that take a hell of a long time to achieve. And I imagine it's the same thing when you're, you know, you're, you're trying for that elusive World Series victory. Some baseball players who are in the Hall of Fame never won a World Series. Some right? really good players never even played in the, in the playoffs. playoffs. Yeah, and I think that too. And you know, I talk about it like a young guy, like a Juan Soto, comes up and wins the World Series, and like, wow, you right. think that's going to happen yep. every year? And you know, it's not his fault. I mean, you know, he was obviously a huge part of it. And I would never not want a young guy to win the World Series. I don't care who's on my team if you win the World Series, but you know, I don't think people young players, and then I don't think fans realize how hard it is, first of all, to get to the playoffs, and then second of all, to win in the playoffs. I mean, the, the years that we lost, besides maybe one year, we really were in every single series. I mean, a lot of, like, game fives or, you know, games or series that we could have won if, like, one little thing go, goes the other way or if we get a big hit here or we make a play. and It's just so hard when you get to that level it's the same thing with, you know, hunting Bin Laden or who, who, whoever the, right. the target is. Like, when you get to that level, one little thing can probably ruin the whole mission or for us can swing the game. And then if you don't win game three, then game four and five. Like, it, it's, it's, it's just so hard. And I think for those 10 years, we pretty much made the playoffs, not every year, but we were in it every year. 
And it just became like, oh, well, every year this is what's going to happen. And, like, it ended up being kind of like that, but it wasn't that easy, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. and uh, But, yeah, it's um, – but like you said, your buddy fin- – you, you finish and then it's almost like you're – like you're high, your adrenaline, like you want it, you need it, something to push right. you. And, to, and then when you accomplish it, for us, it's easy. We just try and win another one. Right. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's more people that your buddy is obviously looking into, but that was like the crown jewel of the time. And once you do it, I'm sure he's, it's almost like a, a letdown. You want to keep doing it almost since it's, not, it wasn't, he, he wasn't upset. I'm sure that they finally accomplished the goal, but you kind of like, doing that stuff. <laughs> that's true. No, I mean, the, the, the counterterrorism world, that's addictive. I mean, yeah. it's, I, I, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to say. Well, you know, I remember watching the, uh, the recent HBO documentary on Derek Jeter, and I thought it was so interesting because I think now it seems like, looking back, he's very appreciative. But he was so driven all the time that it's almost like he, he, you know, he didn't understand how much he had accomplished all those World Series victories because all he wanted was more. It's, I think that's, some, it's a, that's, a, that's a kind of a strange little tick that a professional baseball player will have and, and a CIA operations officer as well. Um, maybe, you know, when you're done with your career, you look back at all those great things. But for us, it's always, you know, it always is, you know, okay, what's next? You know, there is, there is more to do. And, you know, in the counterterrorism world, it certainly was like that. There's more people who want to do harm to the United States. So you can, you know, you can kind of have a beer with your friends around the fire pit in Eastern Afghanistan. You know, we used to call it caveman TV. Uh, and then you're like, all right, let's get on with it. What's next? We really pour a ton of time and energy into delivering what we think are the best guests, the best questions, and the best supporting materials when compared to any other spy podcast out there. On supporting materials, for example, we provide you with extended show notes with a couple of cheeky asides, detailed further resources to dig deeper into the content, full transcripts to search, share, or language learn, and heavily researched interludes that are explained in simple terms to make sure that you have the tools and understanding to digest each episode or place it within a deeper historical context. This is a sickness, a fire in our bellies. We want as many people as possible to understand the most misunderstood of topics, intelligence and espionage. We hope that we provide some social value to you. Can we ask for a favour in return, please? Could you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It won't cost a cent and will take up much less time than a commercial break on your favourite TV show. We ask this because these kinds of things really matter for podcasts. One, I can talk about how good I think our podcast is all day long. But for other listeners, they care more about what you think of our show. Two, Because we want to reach as many people as possible and we care about it so much, your reviews increase our chances of being discovered. Finally, three, we read every single one of your reviews and they are tremendously helpful because they allow us to take specific actions to keep improving the show. Thank you. We'll be right back after this. After you reached the promised land, so to speak, was there was there a feeling of deflation after that? This could be the only time I'm ever at this height. And was there a feeling, yeah, I don't know, because I've never reached those heights. What was it like? Well, I mean, you've done some pretty good stuff, so I wouldn't, <laughs> so, I wouldn't discredit yourself that much. Um, I mean, for me, honestly, everyone asks, like, what did you do that night? And after that game was over, I didn't realize it until the game was over, but I was so mentally drained that I had all these plans to, like, go party and go do all these. And my dad was there. Heather was there. Some of our closer friends were there. And we had a couple of drinks afterwards, but you, I was so exhausted. Like, you don't realize it when you're in it, when you're in the moment. I mean, we played, gosh, an extra probably 20-some games. And, like, those games are different. I mean, you pay attention obviously during the regular season and you're you're in every game, but like the postseason is every single pitch is like 
you know, the last couple innings during the regular season where you're really locked in and you do that for the first series and then each series kind of compounds with the intensity and the media and, you know, the, I say pressure. I mean, I don't, I, I enjoy being in those situations, so I don't really think the pressure does that. But when I finished after that game seven and I kind of just had a moment to just sit down, I was like, wow, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the next three days, four days, you know, you, you, you party and you have fun. And, and then, yeah, I think you reach it and it's, it, there's that climax and that you get to the top and, and then you give yourself a week or two off. And then it's like what you were talking about with Derek Jeter. It's like, all right, now the spring training's in, <laughs> That's right. in literally two months. Uh, give yourself a couple weeks off and you got to, you got to get back on the horse. You know, one of the things uh, in my old world, and again, I'm sure it's it's the same with with baseball. Is you know, you have the highest of highs and you have the lowest of lows. And so, you know, there's there's a character trait that I loved about CIO officers, and 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 it's for professional athletes too. I'm sure I'm sitting next to one here. Is that is that it's about humility, um, because it's it's such a tough business that we're in. Uh, and so you're gonna you know you might win a World Series, but then you know the next year you might be injured and hit hit two twenty. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's trying to keep kind of that straight, even keel. Um, one of your teammates, I thought, was one of the most humble players I'd ever seen was Howie Kendrick. So really remarkable uh, uh, figure. And if you remember in the World Series, of course, Ryan, you do, you know, he had, the, the beginning of his World Series wasn't so great. The end of it certainly was. Made some errors yep. at the beginning. And, and so, and you know, what a, what a great kind of, you know, figure to look at. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, high risk, high reward uh, type of profession that I was in. And so, you know, there, there were times where we had a tremendous operational success. The President of the United States was lauding us. You're walking high, you feel great. And then something really bad would happen afterwards. Maybe there was involved loss of life. Um, so, so, you know, that kind of, kind of, you know, being humble is, uh, it was, it was a trait that I, you know, I, that's when, when people ask me, what's the most important thing to do in a long career in intelligence is that. I always remember that men in mid park when he hit the flagpole I think I, I think I lost my voice oh, instantaneously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he told me he tried to get that. They won't get, they won't give it to him. No. But yeah, he was one of my favorite favorite teammates of all time. I mean, he's such a great person. Um, but yeah, like going back to what he said, the humility, and we always used to say nobody's bigger than the game. Like yep. you could have a superstar. He pulls a hamstring the next day. There's going to be a game without that person <laughs> like baseball doesn't wait for anybody just like i'm sure their job doesn't wait for anybody you could have a hot shot awesome agent person that definitely needs everyone else on his team you can't do anything by yourself baseball is for sure like that i mean basketball you know if you have a really good player you're probably going to be pretty good football if you have a really good quarterback you have a chance to be really good i'm not saying you don't need the other guys on the team but baseball you can't have just one good player. It has to be everyone. I meant to say foul pole, not flagpole. (laughs) 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 That's actually one of my questions because, again, as an outsider, it seems to me that in uh, your former world, Mark, and your former world, Ryan, they seem less susceptible to like a Tom Brady or a LeBron James type figure. Like you can't have one person that carries the whole team like the Nats in 2019 doesn't happen without yourself, Soto, Strasbourg, Scherzer, the, all these people coming through. You, you, you can't just have one person that you're relying on. It's more, I guess the responsibility for team success is more spread out rather than focused on certain individuals. Would you agree with that? I think it's, it's, it's a parallel to both worlds. So, you know, in, in, in my book, I talk about that principle, a leadership principle of the glue guy, which, which frankly is a sports term. But it's the it's the notion there's an, there there are, there are indispensable members of your team um, who might not be starting, you know, might not be on the field that day. But you know, think about the second or third string catcher, you know, all the bullpens that pitchers have to um, uh, uh, throw or, or, or utility players, uh, and and at, you know, at CIA it was the same thing. So you don't have a bunch of superstars, but when you have a huge operational success, it could be support officers, you know, in the rear or logistics officers. You know, I tell a, a great story from. You know, my time in Afghanistan where, you know, our job was hunting high value targets. That's all. I was singly focused when I was there and we did a very good uh, job on it, protecting Americans. But I'll never forget it was, it was the day a young Afghan boy stepped on a landmine outside our base and he blew his leg off and he was bleeding out. And one of our medics, our docs, came and they saved his life. You know, that's not going to get any headlines back at Langley. You know, it had nothing to do with, 
with saving uh, uh, you know, American lives in counterterrorism missions, but we did something really good that day, and the medic did. And I remember addressing the team afterwards um, and how proud I was of them. But that's the notion of having you know an indispensable behind the scenes players. And I think you know baseball is a absolute perfect example of it. I mean, Ryan, how many times have you seen you know someone coming off the bench? Uh, with a, with a huge pinch hit or someone, you know, each 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 playoff team, World Series team, seems to have someone who was was kind of overlooked yeah, and then well, comes up in a heroic fashion. Yeah. In 2019, and you know, I said when I spoke at the parade, you know, I said I truly believe that that was the only team that could have done that. I mean, to start 19, because we were first of all, we were a really good team. I mean, you have to be really good to win that many games. I mean, we played ridiculous after that 1931 start. But we had such a great mix of veteran guys with young guys, a couple superstar players, mostly just really good, like, MLB players that knew the game, didn't panic. And we had just such a good mix of all the different types of people, too. You know, people from America, people from Latin American countries, people... And some teams kind of... They have their own little group. Like, we did everything together. And, you know, it didn't matter if you were a pitcher. It didn't matter if you were from the Dominican Republic. It didn't matter if you were from California. And I really think that's what got us through that first time. And Davies really deserves a lot of credit for that, too. But, you know, a guy like Para, you know, nobody gets to see what he did with Juan and Victor Robles on a daily basis, teaching them, you know, how to do their work, how to get out there and, you know, every day during BP, go out there and do your outfield throws, your things like that, where some days they probably wouldn't have done it. And he's like, nope, go, go do it. And, like, they're like, oh, come on, man. They're like, He's like, just go do it. So, like, you need those guys. And, like, he said, that, not that he he didn't save anyone's life, nothing that that medic did, but that wasn't in the paper. Like, you never saw right. one article about that. But that was probably more important than what they did on the field. Parra was a classic glue guy. Yeah. Perfect, yep. Him, Anibal Sanchez, yeah. you know, all the, and Brian Dozier was, I mean, he's all-star, but, you know, and then Kurt Suzuki and Jan Gomes, two veteran guys who are completely fine with splitting time. A couple of them, one guy would get hot and one guy wouldn't play for four or five days, no complaints. And then when it's their turn, they're ready. Like, you have to have people like that. For that team, we had to have it. And I still believe to this day that no other team would have done what we did that year. I, I always thought that uh, Patrick Corbin was overlooked in that World Series. Uh, he closed it out. Um, I just thought he'd done such a great job, but he's not one of the people that's most often discussed when that team is discussed. He was asked to do so many things that he was not brought here to do. And when you have a guy that signs the type of contract that he signs, makes the type of money that he makes to be a starting pitcher, he could have easily said... Nah, I'm good. Nobody would have thought anything different, you know. But he, every time, I mean, I think he threw three or four innings in that game seven. And you're right, nobody really talks about him. I think when we did that silly game seven rewatch with, you know, where we all, by the end, we were really silly watching. The was it, that seven. was the Zoom call, right? Yeah. That was great. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, there was like three or four times where everyone's like, wow. Patrick pitched a long time in this game. <laughs> you know, when you're in the game, you're just like, you're just trying to get out. So, I mean, you're, you're counting down, you know. And I remember Davey talking with him afterwards. I, he's like, I just kept asking him, like, hey, all right, I think you're good. And he's like, no, I, mean, I, I feel good. I'll keep going. And, like, yeah, I think you're right, though. He doesn't get enough credit. And, you know, obviously he had a tough year this year. And I I think that year kind of set him back a little bit. And But the way that he works – I think he'll figure it out and bounce back from this year. But I think that run, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, mean, I don't think he would ever say it anyway. But I think that kind of kind of hung with him for, for the next year or so. Mm-hmm. And one thing I wanted to ask both of you about was for sports, for example, you often hear of a flow state, you know, when people are in the zone and they're just operating almost 
an unconscious or subconscious level. I'm, I'm quite interested to know if you ever experienced that in the world of espionage, Mark. Were you ever out on one operation where you're just like, you, you come back and you're like, wow, I was on fire there, even though you're humble, but you know you're, sometimes you know your own performance, right? I mean, certainly not again, at the level you were operating at, but um, I used to love playing centre forward in soccer. And I remember sometimes I'll come off the pitch and it's like, I Whenever I touched the ball, it ended up in the back of the net. I don't kind of know what was happening, but I just know that every time I went for the ball, like I just connected with it sweetly. Everything felt right. I had a feeling in my gut ended and I'm like, I wish I could recreate that feeling every single time. Did you ever have that in your world, Mark? Yeah, you know, in, in particular, and, and it, you know, it's, it's similar to the, you know, the 2019 Nats when you know you have that kind of, that great makeup. Of players, so for you know, for example, for the CIA, you know, it was a CIA station. It was a group of officers. Maybe it's five, ten, fifteen, and and you know, you get that feeling after going through some type of crisis situation. And, and I, you know, I, I think that the, the feeling I had, uh, you know, specifically this, you know, we were, I was in an embassy uh, in the Middle East, and the, uh, the embassy was, you know, unfortunately attacked by Al Qaeda. So there was an assault at the front front gate. There's, you know, there, there's a automatic weapons fire. There's grenades being thrown, you know, on the on the on the roof of our of our building. There's a car bomb that hits the back gate. Doesn't go off, thank God. Or I'm, I'm or it's just you two today, not <laughs> me. Uh, but but on but I, we had we had such a great team at that office, and we had actually uh, you know trained for this because it was it was a dangerous environment. So you know, in terms of putting you know getting people you know uh, uh, having them put on body armor, body armor breaking open you know the, the weapons locker. And ultimately, when we made it through that, but it was because I, I, you know, I had so much trust and faith just in that specific team, and and you know that that hasn't been the case my entire career. Sometimes you go, um, uh, you know, when I was serving overseas, and you know, you know perhaps you don't have uh, that kind of uh, uh, kind of unique kind of link and, and unity of effort. Um, but then, you know, I, I think I think you actually you feel it when you go through some type of crisis or or even you know some type of operational success too. And, and those are magical moments when you have that right mix of officers. Um, same thing I would imagine, you know, the same type of of team that really kind of is gelling together. And, and you know, I think, you know, to the, the 2019 Nats, you know, one of my most, you know, uh, you know, cherished memories, I was at that, you know, the, the wild card game with uh, with Juan Soto, just just unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, my, I've never seen my son scream so much, he poured a beer over my head, in <laughs> fact. Um, but, there, but the other thing, too, is that it's also interesting, there's other teams, I think that there's been other Nats teams that you've been on, which were inc- incredibly talented as well but perhaps didn't have that same kind of just unique makeup where everyone is gelling. Yeah, and I think individually, baseball-wise, there are days where you feel like you felt. And, I mean, the one that comes to, like, in 18, I had the really good really good year and the first half, and you almost just do the same thing every single day. You get there, you, like, I had this drill I did with Kevin Long, our hitting coach, where we'd put a net on home plate and he would throw me flips, and it basically didn't allow me to, you know, go out. It kept me tight, and, you know, I would hit, and if you did, you drilled. I mean, you hit the net. That was and It got to the point where then I started having success. So every single day, like, I had to do this, and you become, like, a creature of habit. I mean, that's, that's baseball, a creature of habit. We're all almost to a fault sometimes that way. But that feeling that you were saying where you, you felt like you were going to score a goal every time. Like, I felt like I was going to get a hit every time. So I just kept doing it every single day. And then there's days where you go up and you feel like it's like 0-2 before you even step in the box. And you're like, if I can just go like one for three today with a walk, that's a win. <laughs> like, that's a great day. Yeah. And it's bad because those days you feel like you always come up with like the bases loaded or you come up and it really pushes you. That's That's the mental side of the game. I think so much of it is tricking yourself into thinking you be you can be successful when you feel bad. Anyone can do it when they're when you feel locked in or when things are going well, but being able to go out there and playing every day like 25, 30% of the games that you play in or you're probably feeling that way where you have to somehow mentally tell yourself like, you know, you're you're fine, get, get through it and just do something. Just try and do one good thing today to help the team win and and then you know it snowballs, but it's such a roller coaster ride our season that you just kind of have to try and stay as level as you can. And when you get high, know that you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be low at some point too. So don't don't celebrate too much. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Ryan, was uh, I don't know if you felt this smart, but for that 2019 run from the wild card game on, or even the final game of the season, I just had this growing feeling in my gut that. 
something was happening. And then it almost seemed like one of those things where you're like, I don't want to say it out loud in case I'm, I'm jinxing myself. But I was like, I think this could happen. I think the Nats could win the World Series. And then there was a little bit of a wobble, you know, at one point when the, the Astros were up. But like most of the time, I just felt like, I felt like I was on a train that was definitely going to arrive at a particular destination. I just wonder if you as a season ticket holder and fan felt that and you as a player, did you feel, wow, this is, this feels, this feels weird. This feels like there's something in my gut, a visceral feeling. Yeah. And I think, you know, we had done it the other way where we won 97 games. We clinched the division on like September 5th. And I would do that every year. I tell everyone I would take that every single year. No, no doubt about it. Um, but it's really hard when you do it that way to continue the momentum and to continue the intensity, even though you're trying to win every game still. And we were to the point a couple years where it's like, you know, how much do you play the regular guys? You have to play them, obviously, but like you don't want to get anyone hurt. So then you're almost playing hesitantly, which is there's, that's no way to do anything in life I think so in 19 we literally had to like our playoffs started in July pretty much so like from July all the way to November every game was a playoff game and you just get into that mode where you know that feeling and that everyday pressure so by the time we got to the playoffs it was just another game and I think you know we set the goal to just get back to 500 and then we got there and then we set the goal to like you know, obviously get to the wild card. And then, you know, as we started doing that, you gain confidence. And then towards the end of the year, we're like, man, you could tell other teams, they want to know part of us. Like we were the team that nobody wanted to play because you're supposed to beat them. But I think people knew, I mean, our roster was unbelievable. So like, not only did we have the really talented, great roster, but we kind of had to do normally what, you know, not the really talented, great roster teams do. And that's why they're so dangerous because they're playing with house money. They don't have anything to lose. And all of a sudden, we were kind of that team with like a $200 million payroll. <laughs> Somehow, we, we defied the odds to, to get into that, that situation. We were the underdog, but we weren't really. But we convinced ourselves that, that that's who we were. Was there a certain point where you thought this could be the year? Or did you try not to think about that? No, I mean, I think... The, the coolest thing about that year was like every game someone else did it. Like nobody felt the pressure that they had to do it every game. So like like when we, even game seven, when we got behind, like I remember walking to the dugout and like you talk about Howie, me and Howie were like, eh, someone, like it's just a matter of time. Like it was always that. It wasn't like, oh man, we're behind. It was like, oh, we're behind. It's all right. We'll be ahead soon. Like nobody would really say it. But everyone was thinking the same thing. Nobody panicked. It was just, we knew, it's kind of like you knew it was meant to be, I guess, is the best way. And like, that's why you say we go up to nothing. We go in there, we beat their two best pitchers. Like those, Garrett Cole hadn't lost since like May, I don't think. We beat them. And everyone's like, oh man, they're going to do this. And then we come home and get our ass kicked. (laughs) Like not even close. Lost and, three straight, right? Yeah. At home, yeah. And I remember yeah. after that game, Davey, we all, you know, we came back in and a bunch of us talked. Um, just not, not like a panic meeting or anything like that, but just like a, hey, everyone, like, you know, what just happened? And, you know, and I, I remember like the one thing I said in that meeting was, I said in, in, you know, in May, if I told everyone of you in this room that all we had to do is win one series, just win two out of three games to win the World Series, everyone, we would have laughed in each other's faces. And I said, we're in the, like, this is a dream, like a dream spot for us to be in. You know, no one would have thought we were here. And now all we have to do is win two out of three games. We won two out of three games, like, every single time since July. <laughs> so I was like, we're, we're in a good spot, you know, and we had, like, our pitching lined up pretty well. Um, and for that team... Doing something stupid like winning all four road games was just, I think, how it how it had to happen <laughs> had to with go. the way that, that year went. Yeah, so it made sense. Did you ever have that feeling that the Nats were going to do it much earlier on? 
Uh, well, I mean, I think that, you know, the uh, again, as, a, as someone who is, you know, went to so many games, the start was just not what the team was was all about. The team was way too good. Um, but when you when you look back at it, uh, and, you know, they're, they're, that's a lot of adversity they're going through. And, you know, then they come back and they're at, they're at 500 and there's going forward. And, and as a as two things, as a fan, but also as someone who, you know, I studied leadership and I was a leader at, at CI and I loved the notion always of leading kind of elite high performance teams. But the one thing I saw from that 2019 team, you know, was again not only overcoming adversity, not not only the talent, but they were they were loose, um, you know. And there's an expression we use, you know, in the intelligence special operation world, which is you know dare to fail, um, you know. So so they were playing loose, which is really important. And then finally, it's just the notion of that team was a family. I mean, it was so obvious, you know, from from sitting in the stands all the time. But having that that notion of you know the, you know this 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 group is so tight and they're selfless. And they understand it's going to take everyone, and so you know you start getting that that feeling as well. And and you know there was there was you know so many moments that could have swung you know each way. Again, that that you know that wild card game was just it was extraordinary. But I remember um, far different uh, being a fan. But even down th- when you know when you all were down three um, two, people you know uh, you know were still fairly confident. Uh, and uh, and again, that final game was just was just uh, amazing. But but you know there's there if you study elite high performing teams, there's so much of that makeup of that 2019 Nats squad that kind of applies. Um, it, it, you know certainly in, in my old world. Um, but it was it was really it was a joy to watch. It was a lot of fun. Since the birth of America, the world has changed many times over, especially with regards to technology and how it enables or constrains espionage, intelligence, and covert action. Let's discuss an example. I am desirous that this should not fall into improper hands. A 1775 letter to Thomas Jefferson declared, I could wish to hear that this finds a safe conveyance to your excellency. The man who wrote this letter, David Bushnell, invented the first submarine in the history of the United States, the Turtle. A replica of this submarine now sits in our lobby at the International Spy Museum. It saw action in the first year of the American Revolution, when Sergeant Ezra Lee attempted to sneak up on HMS Eagle in New York Harbor, then occupied by the British. The aim was to send the egg-shaped, one-man vessel, driven by hand-cranked propellers, with a top speed of around three miles per hour, underwater, attach a bomb to the ship's hull, and blow it up. It did not work, in part because the turtle's underwater endurance was approximately 25 minutes. To give you an idea of how much submarine technology has changed, a modern nuclear submarine can theoretically stay underwater for around 25 years. That's over 13 million minutes. For math whizzies, you'll know that 25 goes into 13 million 520,000 times. Talk about change. I think the dare to fail thing is enormous that's one of my favorite the teddy roosevelt man in the arena like you have to have not just one or two guys in baseball like i would want you put me up at the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth i'll take it every single time even if i feel like i have zero chance i'm i want to be there because like that's the only way you can be the guy is to be in that situation i mean there's a really good chance you're going to fail but i'd rather take the chance that i succeed and i can be the guy who wins the game um, you can't do it if you're not in the situation. And I think we had so many of those guys, and you need that because if you only have a couple of those guys, it's very rare that those certain guys come up in those situations. And I think throughout that whole run, we had guys who didn't care if they failed. They wanted to be in the big situation because they loved the the opportunity to be the hero. And the opportunity to be the hero also has the opportunity to, That's be, right. yeah. to be the goat or whatever you want right. to call it. Um, but I'll take that chance every time. I remember, and we played the Cubs one year when Joe Madden was still there, and Bryce was hitting in front of me, and Bryce was on fire. Joe Madden intentionally walked Bryce, I think it was four times that game. And I no joke, I think I left 13 people on base that game. I got out every single time. 
and the media afterwards was like, you know, do, what what do you what, what were you thinking? What happened? I said, well, if I was Joe Madden, I would do the same thing. I said, I would walk him to get to me. And I said, you know, I said, you know, I didn't do it today. And, you know, I ended the interview with, I said, but I hope Joe does it again tomorrow. Because I'd rather be in that situation and fail than not be in this situation. You, you know, you have to have that mentality um, in, in these in these professions. It's almost, you know, you raise your hand and you say, you know, send me. And, and I'll tell you that, that, uh, that, you know, man in the arena quote by... Teddy Roosevelt, I had that, I had that uh, uh, mounted in a, in, a, in a frame in my office in, in the CIA's counterterrorism center. It's the best. Yep. The best. I and, think it, it, to me, and everyone knows, I, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. Without, <laughs> so that is my, like, I think it's the media and players now. And I like media. I think there's great journalists. I think there's great. But so many people nowadays are so quick to judge and point out failure and they've never been in this situation. And that's not, I'm not picking on beat writers or people who maybe played baseball until high school. Like they love the game of baseball and they're important for the game of baseball. I'm not saying that these people are bad people, but every now and then take a step back and you have to, like if I strike out with the bases loaded, you have to write, I strike out with the bases loaded. But you, these people have never gone through the stuff that we're going through and are sometimes the quickest people to point out failure or to blame people or to write, you could write it in a nicer way. So that's kind of, you know, what I love about that quote, but yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a great quote. And it, you know, it's, it's almost, you know, you have to make the uncomfortable comfortable. And I, I used, I used to say that all the time. Um, again, it's putting yourself in, you know, high stress, you know, uh, uh, kind of high fail situations, but being okay with it. And, and because also you also have done a lot to prepare for that. And that's one of the, you know, it's another, I think, comparison I make between the, the, the two professions is there's processes at CIA. You know, when you prepare for an operation, you pre- prepare for a team to go to a war zone. Same thing with baseball. And if you, if you feel, you know, in your soul, if you know, okay, you know, I've, I've worked out all summer, I've eaten, I, I eat great, I've done all my, bull, you know, my bullpens if you're a pitcher, if I've been hitting every day. Same thing with, with, with the CIA. If you know you've done all these things to prepare, then when you're in that situation, you know, hey, you know, it might not go so well in the end, but there's nothing else I could have done. And 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 the other part too is that there's the 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 kind of the cool part about it feeling inside is if you actually are okay with stepping up like that, jumping into the arena, knowing when you're going to fail, like that's almost liberating. Because not first of all, not many people do that or are willing to do that. But I think Ryan's right. And then you know, people cast a lot of stones. People can criticize when when ultimately there is something that goes wrong. But I bet a lot of those beat writers would not even step one foot in that batter's yeah, box in front of forty thousand people. I couldn't grammatically correctly write a, a an article either, <laughs> right. so I wouldn't judge their writing. You know, but I mean, I think obviously I'm not saying nobody should judge anybody, but um, you know maybe take a step back and have right. a little bit of compassion for, for both sides. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Mark, for the teams that you were a part of, did you have clutch hitters and pinch hitters? Were there people on your teams that you were like, wow, we need someone to dig us out of a hole here and you would turn to someone or maybe that person was you? Well, I mean, well, sure. I mean, you know, look, every team is different. And so, you know, I talked about the importance of the glue guys and some of the support personnel, but you do have kind of your pipe hitters you know, or, or, you know, for, you know, for, for oper- you know, operations officers who you knew you could really count on for some things. And that's, you know, that's the essence of making up a kind of a high performance, uh, a unit. I mean, you know, for myself and, and again, I do have, I am, I'm, I am humble and cause I've, I've had tremendous success and some really awful failure that I've talked to you about before. You know, um, but, but there were times in my career where, you know, the CIA asked me, you know, specifically to do something because they knew I had the talent and skill to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it did work out well and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly proud of that, but it's also, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight. It's about, you know, it's a lot of training. It's a lot of experience. And, and you know, the one thing that I found, and, you know, I think it's probably the same in, in, in the baseball world, um, you know, the more experience you have, uh, uh, you know, the better off you're going to perform. It's hard for a rookie to, to have, you know, an incredible, um, you, know, uh, you know, run throughout a, you know, 162-game season. Well, same thing for CIA. Brand new officers, you know, don't have that kind of experience. And so, you know, down the line when you are kind of well-seasoned and then, you're asked to do some things. Um, sure, you know, there's times where I, I performed as I should have, and, and I'm extremely proud of it. And so, you know, it's can't tell the stories about it, but <laughs> it's almost like you build up muscle memory. Well, so so you know, it, it, it's and, and it's, it's going to be the same thing again with baseball. It's there were times at the end of my career where I was sitting overseas, you know, for the CIA, and I said, "There's nothing that can happen today that I haven't experienced." 
you know, whether, whether we catch a high value target, whether we, you know, recruit a Russian diplomat or, or the other hand, if, you know, whether one of my officers is hurt or, you know, injured or killed, perhaps, um, if I have a cranky ambassador, if the, you know, the, the king or queen of that country is mad, I mean, just all these things that could happen. I will have experienced it all before. Um, and so there's a comfort in, in knowing, uh, that you are able to handle these, these situations. And again, it's the same thing if you've had, you know, several thousand at bats over season after season. And what, one of the, the other interesting historical nuggets that I found, uh, just to throw it in there, uh, in 1970, the CIA director, Richard Helms, gave congressional testimony where it was photographs uh, of Cuba and there were, he was pointing out that there were soccer fields, not baseball fields. And basically the feeling was that because it was soccer fields, war was on the horizon with the Soviet Union because he said, we have never seen anywhere where the Cubans are where there are not baseball fields because they're not soccer players, they're baseball players. So actually the photographic interpreters thought that the likelihood of war was higher because <laughs> soccer fields were there instead of baseball fields uh, and the Soviets were building up again in Cuba, which I thought you would find quite interesting. I thought you were going to say it was because, you know, that soccer was a communist sport and baseball was <laughs> capitalist, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to get everyone mad at me now. <laughs> and another parallel, which I think is interesting, is the signs or codes so uh, in espionage as well, you develop a way to try to securely and secretly communicate with people on your own team, but hide it from the other team. And that's exactly what happens in baseball. And in 2019, there's a, a very famous example uh, with the, the Houston Astros and their sign stealing. And this story has long legs that continue to this day, right? The managers of the Tigers and the the Red Sox, you know, are still there and, you know, the Mets lost the manager. So so this story is still with us. But I just want to I want to go to that because we've got a, 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 a spy here and a baseball player here. So I thought this would be a good time to talk about it. So I guess just to start off with Ryan, like in the, in the press anyway, it says that this had been kicking around for a few years. People, they knew, but they didn't know that the Astros were up to something. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the evolution of this idea that the Astros are, are cheating, uh, how that sat with you. Like, so you know it's on your radar, but it maybe doesn't affect you. And then you're like, wow, we're, it looks like we're going to play the Astros in the World Series. Then yeah, help, help us understand that, that journey of the playing against the Houston Astros who, who had these rumors swelling around them about sign stealing. Yeah, I think, you know, technology is great and, and really terrible it's in some some instances. And, um, you know, baseball, the technology has really, I guess, grown over the last five or ten years. And just like anything, people are going to try and take advantage of, of situations, and you're going to have people that are good people and people that, you know, push the limits. And uh, sign stealing has always been a part of baseball, and I think um, it goes back to probably the very beginning of baseball. Um, but when you use technology and start doing things that aren't, you know, seen on the field or or with the human eye and, and, and basically communicated or given from me to another player, you're, you're bringing in a third party that's using a computer or a TV or your own camera feed or things like that. That's where, that's why this thing, and rightfully so, got so much attention because you know, it's also the, you know, just the, you're messing with just the game of baseball. I mean, you know, fans are coming to a game to watch competition. They come to watch us play because we can do things that they can't do. And I'm not saying if you pick a fan out of the stands and tell them that Justin Verlander is throwing a fastball, they could they could hit it. But some of those guys might, someone might be, like you're taking away our skill, like you're taking away what makes them want to come watch us. So it's basically the integrity of the game is being challenged. And I think that's the biggest problem that we all had. I mean, obviously the the cheating and and the sign stealing and all, you know, the technology and the, the whole way that they, you know, banging the trash can and all that stuff is is awful. But I think to me it was just the integrity of the game. And for us baseball players, that's that's our livelihood. And if someone tries to challenge that and 
then all of a sudden everyone everyone thinks that all of us are doing it. Like you're taking away what I'm special at. So I think that's why people got so so angry about it. Um, you know, that being said, I can tell you many a times where we've stolen signs where we, you know, are with, uh, you know, on the field. And we, we've talked about this a little bit before already, but, you know, if I'm on second base and we – Veteran teams are really good at this. You just have to, you have to really watch it. You have to be careful. Like, if I'm on second base and I can see into the pitcher's gloves and I can see him holding a changeup, or I can see the catcher's signs and they get lazy and they don't do a good sequence, or they even just maybe just put down one. Like, we would have sign. Like, if there's a runner on second, and you know he's throwing a changeup. You just wiggle your thumb, and if you see that as a hitter, or you just kind of like bounce your shoulders up and down. I mean, everyone does this. And, you know, you can see certain things like that. And if you know a pitch that's coming, it could change the game. And even another instance for someone on our team, Strasburg, who <laughs> the MVP that year, he would come set right here too high, and I'm at first base. And I could see every time he's throwing a changeup, so could the first base coach. So if it was a right-handed hitter up, the first base coach would either do this or do this or whatever. And if it was a left-handed hitter up, obviously he couldn't see the first base coach, so he would do it to the third base coach, and then the third base coach would do it to the left-hander. And I, you know, I would go in and I'd tell Steven, and, I, and some of these pitches, they're just not very good at, cha- or they'll change it for a couple pitches, and then they kind of lose their thought process, and they go right back up. So to me, that is perfectly legal and fine sign stealing. That's part of the game of baseball, and, you know, the other team should just get better. But using your own camera feed to look at the, you know, the catcher's signs, and then having a basically an algorithm that figures out what sign they're using within like two pitches, and then having someone down in the dugout with their own TV looking at the signs and relaying a noise like that's not. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to see that that's a lot different than the other things. So that's why everyone was so mad about it, and I think for a lot of those players, like once you're in it, you almost convince yourself that like, well, other teams are probably doing this or, you know, if we don't do it, someone else will. Or like, so I think what made a lot of us so upset is nobody stepped up and said, Hey, this is wrong. Like not because it's wrong for like, it's wrong for the game of baseball. It's wrong for the fans. It's wrong. Like I said, for the integrity of the game. I think that was the biggest thing with me. So, you know, the, the, the conversation is really interesting because you'd think that as a former CIO officer, you know, I would, I would, you know, I would advocate, you know, any means necessary. Um, and of course, actually, I, prob- I probably would when it comes to our adversaries. But, but the story is a little bit different um, because I really agree with Ryan because there, there's, you know, there are some things that, that we preached and practiced at CIA and that had to do with honesty and integrity. And, you know, when you walk into CIA headquarters on the right is our memorial wall, which is sacred. It is the stars of the officers who are killed. But on the left... There's a biblical verse, and it says, "And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." And it's the idea of being, uh, of having honesty, integrity, and just the notion. I had a former boss of mine who was in the counterterrorism center, and she would just say, "You know, always do the right thing." And so Brian brings up a really interesting point, um, not with all the all all what had you know the kind of the technical aspects of the of the sign stealing, which is interesting and kind of fun, but it's the idea that these teams all knew and collectively did that, and nobody stepped up. And one of the things at CIA that I would always try to say is, you know, when you see something that's wrong, you have to, you have to say something because, you know, this is not going to, you know, this is not fine wine. It's not going to age well and get better over time. Um, and so I think what upset, you know, what upset me about the whole uh, notion of the sign stealing is, you know, there's, you know, there's honor among thieves, but this wasn't honorable. Um, and so, so ultimately it was just the idea that, that the entire teams were kind of aware of this. Um, and it's, one of the things that's interesting is that it didn't come out, you know, as early as it probably should have. You know, someone should have said something, but again, it's it's that collective notion. Well, everyone's doing it. Um, that's not that just wasn't wasn't right. Now the the you know, the the actual mechanics of it, all the things they went through, kind of interesting and, and kind of you know from a you know layperson's perspective. You know, it's these are these are uh, kind of novel ways. But but here's the other thing too: they got caught. So they're you know they maybe they're a little too clever uh, in the end. But but again, going back to honesty, and integrity, really important principles that I think were were violated, and that's something that I really tried to live my my whole career and kind of teach others to do as well.
Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no clip of next week's show. Why? Well, we don't want to ruin the surprise. Needless to say, it's someone whose perspective you'll want to hear. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.